Hello, everyone. I hope you're enjoying your day or evening or afternoon or mid-morning or gloaming, whatnot. This is Emil Kalinowski, and I was recently flipping through The Economist, came across an article, read it, and thought, wow, I would love to pick up the phone, call Jeff, and read out a few paragraphs or sentences to him and get his reaction. And you know what? That's exactly what this episode is. So it's a kind of a brief 20-minute one-off whereby I'm asking Jeff, how would you respond to this? It was the January 23rd, 2021 edition of The Economist in the finance and economics section. Fire without fury. Will Joe Biden's fiscal stimulus overheat the American economy? So this is a bonus making sense. Making more sense. Yeah, extra sense. Let's call it making extra sense or making more sense. I love it. Making even more. I love it. Making more sense. Uh, And why? Why, Jeff? Because I have finally subscribed to The Economist here on the island. Now, everyone is already subscribed to The Economist. uh, But here in the Cayman Islands, things don't arrive on time. In fact, we don't even have postmen here. This had to come by bottle. So I'm not exaggerating. It came by bottle. I finally got it. It's the January 23rd through 29th, so it's a couple weeks back. But Jeff, I was reading this and I came across an article that I highlighted and I thought I would just read it out to you, little segments, and get your perspective and kind of uh, kind of help our audience. What would they say if they're on the bus, they're on the train, and someone's reading this and say, hey, did you know about this? Did you know about this? What would a Eurodollar University listener, watcher, say in return to some of these points being made. Okay, so the article, January 23rd, The Economist, Fire Without Fury. Here's the first quote. Seen from the top down. By the way, so this is, yes, audience, so this is kind of a new thing that we're doing. Let us know what you think in the comments section and on Twitter if you even like this, okay? And if you do, Uh, We'll continue to do it. If there are articles that you want us to read and react to, point them out to us. So that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to something new. If you hate it, send all the hate mail to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Okay, here we go. Quote, seen from the top down, it is a huge debt funded stimulus. Mr. Biden's plan is worth about 9% of pre-crisis GDP, nearly twice the size of President Barack Obama's spending package in 2009. Jeff, it's bigger this time, much bigger. So it's going to help. Economists always believe that, contrary to what we've heard, size matters. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I can't follow that up. Okay, here's the next section. And of course, this has happened in Japan and in Europe. There's always the biggest policy stimulus ever, but we forget how gigantic it was. And now the new ones announced and we think, oh, that's Did amazing. everybody forget about 2020? I mean, it wasn't like we're talking, why are we comparing it to, to the ARA in 2009? I mean, wasn't there a massive fiscal impulse in 2022 combined with a massive monetary? I mean, why are we forgetting about these things? Quote, a natural question to ask then is whether the proposal admittedly opening again, an opening gambit in a negotiation with Congress might overheat the economy if implemented. Uh, Jeff, overheating the economy, the economists, what does this bring to mind for you? 
What we just talked about before, which was the plucking model and difference between filling in the troughs, assuming that it is a trough. And I think that's really where these these fiscal stimulus plans, and more so the commentary that favors them, starts from the, the assumption that we're talking about nothing more than a regular run of the mill, maybe a deep one, but still nothing different than a recession. It's the idea that, you know, hey, even 2008 was a recession. It was a bad one, but it was still a recession. When, when all, all the data and evidence says that it was not a recession, in fact, we experienced a permanent shock, which completely altered the underlying shape of the economy, including its, you know, where, where it, uh, how, it, how it's unable to ever uh, reduce and eliminate macro slack that always remains. And that's where the, you know, why we don't have any inflation, because no matter how much money the government pours into it, it doesn't make up for that lost, what the economists call an output gap. And it's a permanent output gap. I'm showing here the famous, infamous, running hot a car, uh, cover page from The Economist, February 2018, just early February 2018, just as $0.04 had begun. Yeah, and the funny thing is, Emil, that, that February 2018 article was about what? The same thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Mm -hmm. Act of December 2017. That was going to be, oh my God, economists had gone too far. It's going to lead to an inflationary. I mean, that's the whole point of running hot. It was going to lead to an inflationary breakout because here was the federal government injecting tax cuts into an economy that, that they thought was close to. Uh, close to full potential, it had reduced the output gap already. And so the Trump administration to the TCGA was going to unleash, it was going to go too far. It was going to do too much. It was going to be too big. And of course, as we talked about, we talk about all the time. I mean, you know, they don't necessarily ring a bell at the top, but that was as close to it as it was because early February, 2018, the entire system was already transitioning out of reflation number three into euro dollar number four, which by that point we could already pinpoint definitive signs of fragility, deflationary problems showing up across the marketplace. So while the economists represented the mainstream view of here comes the government doing another you know, innovative, robust plan that's going to lead to inflation, when in reality the evidence said, nah, not happening. You, haven't, you guys aren't even close to figuring this out yet. Well, Jeff, did you know that there are three main reasons to suspect that overheating might be in the cards? Tarot cards? Probably. Emerging evidence that the downturn may prove temporary, generous stimulus, and the Federal Reserve's monetary policy strategy. Unemployment fell much more rapidly than forecasters had expected, Jeff. If job creation were to return to the average pace achieved between June and November 2020, the pre-pandemic peak in employment would be reconquered in less than a year. Uh, Which we know is not true, right? I mean, we've been talking about the summer slowdown for seven months now. In fact, we're still 10 million jobs short of where we were in February, and that doesn't count the 2 million jobs that should have been created since March that were never created. So we're actually in a 12 million payroll hole, which is the biggest economic or biggest employment crisis, therefore economic crisis since the Great Depression. And contrary to what they say, the outside of basically only May and June, there wasn't a rapid rebound in 
employment. In fact, that's what we're talking about summer slowdown is that, yes, we had a rapid rebound in two months and then basically sideways for seven. So there's no reason to suspect that's going to change based on what? Based well, on more government spending? But based that's on right. more Federal Reserve? Yes. Yeah. Yes, Jeff, because stimulus has made has more than made up for the disruption of incomes in 2020. In November, Americans' total after-tax income was 4.3% higher than a year ago. According to Fannie Mae, by mid-December, Americans had accumulated about 1.6 trillion. In, oh wait, did they call it excess savings? Yes, excess savings, oh my gosh. If which already, people, yeah, which we talked about before. I mean, that already undercuts their argument. If people aren't spending it because they're worried about their job or they have a job or they don't have a job, I mean, it, you know, it's the permanent income hypothesis. Why does yeah. spending follow income and not government transfers? And the reason is because people aren't stupid. I know the government treats them as stupid and the economist treats them as stupid. Is nothing more than cattle who just respond simply to what they call rational arguments when Really, they're just simple arguments. Um, that's not how it works. People understand intuitively. Yeah, okay, the government's paying me money, but it doesn't mean I'm going to spend it. I'm going to pay down my credit card. I'm going to pay down my debts. I'm going to you know, maybe save it because I don't know. Two months from now, I might be the one that's on the employment line. And you can't change government spending, this idea of aggregate demand and just throwing money at things does not replace lost income and lost potential and lost, you know, Lost of uh, economic capacity. And so Keynesians think that it doesn't matter because the recovery is temporary and that those things will come back on their own when the whole idea of a permanent shock is that, no, they don't come back on their own. So then you're just throwing money at a situation where throwing money doesn't do anything. If people regard these excess savings as delayed income, then the cash hoard represents stimulus that has not yet gone to work to be unleashed when the economy fully opens. Jason Furman, another former Obama advisor, calculates that the combined impact of the December package and the Biden plan would be about $300 billion per month for nine months in 2021. Uh, by comparison, the shortfall in GDP compared with its pre-crisis trend was only $80 billion. So we're adding... 300 billion for the next nine months versus the shortfall of 80 billion. So it seems like that's going to really fill in that gap on that chart we did in the previous episode. Yeah, and I don't think that's the case though, because look, the reason GDP rebounded as much as it did was because of prior government spending. So we're not really measuring mm. the baseline private economy. We're measuring, oh, we're going to add to the previous government spending that didn't get us up to normal anyway, and that's going to overdo it. We're not factoring time in either. Because people, this is now almost a year into this thing, and the labor market is still at the worst it's been since, you know, outside of last year. It's, it's the worst it's been since the 1930s, which is causing all sorts of behavioral changes, too, as the economists identified when they said, we're not, the people are not spending these payments. And of course, they're not spending these payments, and they're not going to spend those payments until the labor market actually comes back, which people are simply vetting, betting that the more spending from the government plus vaccines will make that magically happen. Here's reason number three that the economy may overheat in the United States. The Fed is tripping over itself to signal that monetary policy will remain loose 
a third reason to expect overheating. Mr. Powell says the Fed has learned the lessons of 2013 when it hints that it might taper, when it hinted that it might taper asset purchases and it sent bond markets into a tiz back then. Monetary policymakers still say that preserving smooth market functions is one of the goals of their purchases, even though no dysfunction has been seen in bond markets since the spring. And I highlighted this one in orange. Yeah, because there's so much wrong with it. Well, the, <laughs> so this, the, all right, if you want to react, go to it. I've got the next one is in orange. Oh, well, let's start with that one first. I mean, did bond rates rise in 2013 because of the taper tantrum or because of reflation number th number two? And it's obvious, you know, again, the interest rate fallacy, the mainstream treats bond yields the exact opposite way they actually take place. Think about Dick Fisher or Richard Fisher's uh, comments when he's talking about Operation Twist. Why are we buying bonds that the market is already buying? Yet wrongly, bond, lower bond yields are attributed to quantitative easing when we know the interest rate fallacy. It's the exact opposite. And in fact, quantitative easing makes it worse because it strips bonds and bond collateral out of the repo market, which means that in effect, QE isn't even neutral. It actually is deflationary and anti-liquidity. So the idea that you know the Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates low because it learned its lesson in 2013 only means that it, the Federal Reserve didn't learn the right lesson about 2013, and it doesn't know what the hell it's doing, which is why the first part of that quote, it is left to signal things to the real economy. It's signaling that the, the, uh, the markets are, and, and the uh, system is accommodative and loose and all of those positive buzzwords that, that central bankers use when the markets themselves are telling us that's not the case. Look at TIPS real yields. Look at the nominal yields on treasuries. Even today, as things sell off in the in the long end, you know we compared them last uh, last time. The reflation number, if we call this reflation number four, which I'm not even sure we can, it's still coming up well short of reflation number three, which was well short of reflation number two. So this idea that all of these things are combining together, where I mean, it, there's just really no evidence for it outside of the appeal to authority because Jay Powell said so. Quote, the Fed is so willing to keep the pedal to the metal because, in contrast to the recovery from the financial crisis, it is seeking to overshoot its 2% inflation target in order to make up for continuing shortfalls. The strategy announced last summer is still being digested by investors. No, it's being laughed at. <laughs> it's not being, it was digested immediately and it was immediately laughed at. Um, the idea that oh, we, well, we're going to let inflation overshoot when we still can't explain to you why we couldn't even get it to the target last time is just laughable on its face. Look, we have no idea why we couldn't reach our target with inflation for a 10-year period, despite telling everybody that we were loose and accommodative and money printing and liquidity. All of those things that happened beforehand didn't achieve the target. Now, because they say they're going to let let the inflation rate go above the target they couldn't hit before, that represents some kind of increased accommodation. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely, it's, 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 it's almost Orwellian doublespeak. This is, the, this is the final paragraph, Jeff. Such a scenario remains a tail risk. The most likely outcome is that Congress agrees on a smaller stimulus than Mr. Biden has proposed and that overheating, if it occurs, proves temporary. 
Beyond that, nobody really knows how fast the economy can grow without setting off inflation. Should economic policy stay in uncharted territory, though, its speed limits may be tested more frequently. The uncharted territory part, that's the, well, there's a lot there, but you react. But the uncharted territory, it's not uncharted. It's been tried no, it's in not. Japan. Oh, exactly. That's where I was, that's what I'm going to say is like, look, guys, we've seen this before. Just because you guys ignore Japan and, and, take, and talk about it as, as, as an idiosyncratic case doesn't mean it is. When all the evidence over the last 12 years shows that we are doing, we're repeating not just Japanese programs, we're also repeating the results of those programs, which shows that it wasn't Japan. And really, I mean, the way they wrote the, the, uh, the conclusion you just read there, talk about hedging your bets, lack of conviction there. I mean, it's, hey, we want to celebrate economists and neo-Keynesianism. We're really not sure either. I mean, come on, put your name on it. They don't, by the way. No, nobody puts their names on the economist articles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I had fun, Jeff. I hope you had fun. I thought this was interesting. I want to keep doing it. Let us know what you think in the comments section on YouTube and on Twitter. You can find Jeff at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP and me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, let's do it again, Emil. Take care.